Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com The Self Love Club, a place where boss babes share their stories to empower women. Welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. I'm Val Crawford and you can find out more about why I've launched this club at valcrawford.com. I'd love for you to join it and trust me, it's not like a cult or pyramid scheme. It's literally just a club where you can come hang out. It's going to be a fun time. Join me for a podcast series where we'll hear the stories of girl boss women who are doing super cool things with their lives. We'll find out how they've done what they have, their self-love and self-care practices, and they'll share their tips to empower you to live your best life. Genevieve Mora is the co-founder of mental health charity Voices of Hope. Through her own mental health experiences, Jen wanted to help others in their fight and provide hope. Genevieve battled an eating disorder in her teens, which was close to claiming her life. Her story of recovery is inspiring. This conversation discusses mental health and eating disorders, which may be distressing and triggering for some listeners. If you would like to talk to someone, you can find a full list of contact details in the show notes for this episode and free text or call 1737. Jen, thank you so much for coming to hang out and welcome to the Self Love Club podcast. Thank you for having me. Stoked to be here. Yay. Mm. Now tell us about yourself and what you do. So my name's Jen or Genevieve. I'm 24 um, and I run a mental health charity alongside a girl called Jazz Thornton. Um, having had my own mental health experiences, I wanted to create a platform, I guess, that um, encouraged people to speak up and show people that you can kind of get through what you're going through. Um, so that's, yeah, that's my, my main gig at the moment. And yeah. I also work at a primary school. Yeah, are you a te- and you're a teacher. I was I was a teacher aide. I'm now doing like media studies and film stuff, which oh, I love. That's so um, cool, and I love working with kids. So yeah, I'm I'm pretty pretty lucky to have the balance of both. Yeah, and so how did you? Uh- we have had uh, Jazz on before from Voices of Hope, so mm-hmm. we've, oh, we're getting two of you. Yeah, both, of, both sides. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how did that partnership come about between you two? It's interesting, actually. I was over um, in the States at an acting camp because acting is something I, I enjoy, and um, there was a girl there that had gone to school in Timaru of all places, and she was in Jazz's class, and she was like, hey, I know this one Kiwi girl. She's also really into media and film. You should connect with her. And so we became friends on Facebook, um, and then it was one day Jazz posted a status about a friend that she'd lost to suicide and I think it had kind of been building up in me that I wanted to do something and so I messaged her and I was like hey look I'm really sorry um enough's kind of enough we should do something and I'd seen a bit of her story so I knew she'd had her own experiences um but it was kind of just luck or fate or whatever you want to call it that right time right place and Facebook social media can be Mm. great yeah so she was in New Zealand and you were in America at the time yeah and so we connected. We didn't meet for the first time until the day I flew home. Um, and then she came over. We went up the Sky Tower for a meeting, which was a terrible idea because there was no Wi-Fi, so we couldn't really do anything. Um, <laughs> and then we had like a um, onesie pajama party at my house. We were 18. We were young and That's so unsure cool. of what we were actually going to do. But <laughs> When did you come up with the name Voices of Hope? That was over Facebook as well. So, so you'd um, done that before you'd even met yeah, in person? So we actually did a lot of planning. We had Skype calls. Um, again, we were 18 and... We originally launched in 2014, um, and I think it was due to kind of the excitement. We launched into it super quick without really knowing 
what we wanted to do with it. Um, and because of the feedback and there was a lot of people coming to us and being like, oh, this is awesome. Um, it became a lot pretty quickly. And so we ended up pulling it down for a couple of years um, just so we could really get firm in what we wanted to do mm. and then launch back kind of like stronger than ever, which is which I, is cool. I guess especially when it is something so serious and sensitive like mental health, you know, you, you've you got your best intentions, but like you've got to be really careful, especially when it comes to mm-hmm. like whether that – because at that point were you having like people – Helping people? How did it well, work? Well, this is the thing, because me and Jazz aren't clinical professionals. We've mm. had our own experiences, um, but it's it would be really dangerous for us to kind of give clinical advice, and we actually can't legally. And so it was kind of finding out what our place was. Was it just to give hope to people um, through our stories, or were we wanting to kind of mentor and support people? And I think we didn't have enough of a kind of um, grip around what we actually wanted to do when we launched. Um and probably pulling out at the time we did was a good idea out of just like a risk management thing as yes, well. Yeah. Um, because there was a lot of support and guidance over the next kind of couple of years. And so when we did relaunch, we had yeah like a solid structure around it, um, which is so important because you're literally dealing with people's lives on a daily basis and people that aren't often very well. Mm. There's a lot of responsibility in that. There is. There yeah. is. And I think one of the most... Um, I mean, you meet both me and Jazz, we want to be able to save people. And again, it's not our job to save people. And I remember someone saying at the very beginning that you are going to lose people throughout this journey. You can't save everyone. And at that time I was like, there's no way, like we're going to, we're going to help everyone. It's going to be fine. But I mean, suicide's a real issue and, and people with mental health struggles, you, you can't always, you know, save them and that's not our job. So, um, yeah, so finding that fine line. Hmm. And so did you get quite a bit of, while you took it down and you sort of were working on it again, were you getting quite a bit of help from other people in that er- in that field and who are experts in that area? Yeah. So we were lucky to, um, when we originally, not originally, when we um, eventually relaunched, we'd won a Jetstar scholarship. So we had um, funding that could support us. And a big part of that was kind of creating like a business structure. And so um, as things progressed, we got a board on um, and then, yeah, like you said, getting um, information and guidance from um, people within the field, like psychologists and and just making sure that when we came back, we had enough support around myself and Jazz, but then also around what we were doing because mm. you want to do it right. Totally, you know? yeah. And you weren't to know as 18-year-olds. I mean, oh, you, you no were doing idea. a good thing, but yeah, yeah, like it's like, it's one of those things that I, I know what you mean because when you're young, you're like, I'm going to save the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then it's like, yeah, you can try or you can, you know, you can, mm-hmm. but there's like definitely like, um, I think it worked out perfectly how you did things anyway. Yeah. And I think it did. And we don't see that time as a failure. No, like I don't, I think if that time hadn't happened, we wouldn't have come back as strong as we did. We learned so much from that. And it's yeah. one of those things that if you, you know, if you fail, so to say, you've just got to try again. Yeah. Um, Completely yeah. not a failure. Just a little bit of a break in between to actually mm. go, hey, let's do some back-end work and, and you know what we're exactly doing, you know. Yeah. So take us further back. So that's what you're doing now. Yes. So where did you grow up? Like, you know, So I'm an Auckland girl. Childhood. Um, I grew up in Auckland, Remuera, um, with my family, mum, dad, sister, dog, um, and, yeah, went to um, school in Auckland. And then at the age of 18, I moved to um, Los Angeles. I was well at this point. I'm sure we'll talk about my tricky moments soon um but I went to drama school over there for two years yes um which was awesome and then yeah now I'm back here working in um primary school yeah 
So tell us about your adventures going over there. So like, were you obviously into like, were you into yeah. that sort of stuff growing so up? Yeah, so I was. I was into, I used to be part of the National Youth Theatre Company for kids. And so I was, yeah, I was really into it. My uncle's an actor and it was just something I always found quite interesting. Our neighbours ran a production company and so I was on sets of commercials and stuff. And it was, it, yeah, it was something that kind of um, grabbed my attention, I guess, from a young age and when I finished high school, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. Um, and so I worked for a couple of years and then I was like, you know what, this is actually like, I'd, I had a lot of friends that went straight to uni as you do. It's kind of like the path you finish school, you go to uni. And I was like, actually, I don't have to just follow that because that's what you should do. I was like, I'm going to do something a bit different. So I moved to LA for two years, <laughs> which that's was so a bit cool. random. But um, what was so it like while you were there? Full on. LA's a full on place. Um, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. But, especially um, as an 18 year old, oh, fresh out of New oh Zealand, you know, like it was just stuff like having to learn how to bank checks and, you know, pay rent. Cause I'd lived at home up until then. And, um, America's really backwards. Like you have to pay your rent with yeah. checks and stuff. So everything, and just, just having to be a lot more responsible and which was great. I think I grew a lot as a person, um, and learned a lot about myself as well. Um, in terms of how I like friendships and stuff, it's, I found it hard to make genuine friendships in LA because everyone's kind of there for themselves. And, mm. um, but a lot of my friends were international people and yeah, it was, it was awesome. Yeah. And the weather's hot all the time. Yeah. So you managed, so you were at an acting school for two years. So yes. like, was it hard for you to stay there for two years? Were, you, were there moments where you're like, I don't want to be here anymore? Yeah. So I remember arriving and I went into my flat and there was like a massive heat wave and it was like 40 degrees. Um, I had no furniture for the first two nights. So I remember sleeping. I actually think I slept in my suitcase. I'm real tall, so I'm not quite sure how I fit it in there. <laughs> like legs over yeah. the side. Yeah, exactly. I was just like, get me. I just need to be in something. So I um, did that. It was boiling hot and it was kind of the setting up like when I initially got there I was like what have I done why have I done this um and then of course there were moments throughout the two years where I felt really homesick um but I also felt so lucky to even have the opportunity and you know home's a 12-hour flight if I needed to escape I could have you know yeah done it um it's but, such yeah. an incredible opportunity for anyone to have oh you my know goodness. like so yeah you've got to remember that when you're doing those things hey completely how lucky I was to even have the have the chance yeah yeah and so what happened when you were finished that you came home? What was the plan? Yes. So I came home. So visas are a bit of a pain. Um, so I ended up coming home. Um, I got an agent now, so I do a bit of acting and modelling. And I um, I wanted to find, or kind of give myself some time to kind of get into the groove of things back here. And then a job opportunity came up um, as a special needs teacher aide. And I'd done a bit of that before. Um, and I love working with special needs kids. So I took that, jumped on that, and I'm still at the school three years later. So yeah. um, life just kind of kind of happened. And um, I came back in 2016 and 2017, January, was when we relaunched Voices of Hope. Right. So um, since then, it's just been all kind of yeah. go, go, go. So you're doing a bit of, like you've been, you say you've got an agent, you do a bit of acting, modelling and stuff, mm -hmm. but like, did you ever want to then go overseas and do stuff again? Or it's, what, what was it's it for definitely, you? Um, it's definitely something that's interested me. I think Voices of Hope gave me such like a purpose and yeah. I'm so passionate about it. And so I can't see myself, you know, packing up and leaving. And yeah, I'd love to go and live or work overseas if the opportunity arised. But yeah, my purpose or like what I want to do is, is Voices of Hope. And so that's just going to have to kind of fit around yeah. everything else. Well, that's good. How did you sort of work that out that that was? Because obviously you would have been so driven and wanting to do the acting thing. Like mm -hmm. 
How did you work out that what you were doing now with Voices of Hope, how did you discover that that was your purpose? It's still something, I mean, it's it's happened more recently than anything. I think I've really struggled with um, where I find myself fitting and it kind of got to the point I sat down with our board and I was like, I love this and I love this. And they're like, well, why can't you do both? Mm. And Voices of Hope is something that Jazz and I have created. And so um, it can be readjusted depending on, you know, where we are or what we're doing. Um but I mean, so I haven't like completely dropped the other thing. Um, and if an opportunity did come up, then I'd, I'd jump on it. But um, I just I just think for me, like through my own battle with mental illness, this gives me such a kind of a why. Like mm. when I'm like, because oh, I used to always ask myself, why me? Like, why did I have to be the one that went through it? And to get to wake up each day and like literally save lives sometimes is just yeah. like the best thing in the world and I think it's a good way to be and it's something I think a lot of us have learned as we've gotten older thankfully you know this now already it's like Mm -hmm. especially if you really want something in terms of the acting thing we'll like push and like oh we've got to make this happen Mm -hmm. but I I kind of um I admire your mindset of that you're actually happy doing what you're doing Mm -hmm. you found purpose and then it's like yeah if those things happen cool but you're more going with the flow a lot you've just got to let it be I think um yeah I completely agree have you you always been like that or did you um have you learned to be more like I that? I think I probably learned to be more like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, when I came back from the States, I was like, this is what I want to do. This is all I'm going to do. And realistically, there's not a lot of work in New Zealand. Mm. So um, I guess it kind of happened that way naturally. Um, but, yeah, no, I think I learned I learned a lot throughout my teenage years. And um, those lessons are still things that I, I use today, I guess. What sort of things do you, do you think you learned? Um well, when I'm faced with a challenge, I always tell myself I'm going to be completely fine. Um, I think, you know, I love pushing myself out of my comfort zone too much, um, but I will never go any th- through anything, I hope, as difficult as what I went through. And so, um, you know, I just remind myself how strong I am. Um, I learned a lot about, you know, friendships um, and and how important it is to have a support group around you and people that believe in you and lift you up and, you know, when you're hanging out with friends, if you walk away from that social gathering and it makes you feel deflated or less than you are, then it's, mm. you know, it's not worth it. Um, man, I learned a lot. You learned so much so young. Is this all when you were a teenager? Yeah, I think it was. And I mean, I'm 24 now, so I'm not too old, although sometimes I think I'm so old. You just learn um, a lot. So when you talk about your mental health experiences, when yes. did this sort of start happening for you? It was around the age of 10. Um, so I was young, about the age of the kids I'm working with now, um, which sometimes, you know, freaks me out because I'm like, they're so little. Um, but I was, mm. and and it started with anxiety. Um, I remember seeing a news clip on the news one night, and um, that's kind of the moment that I pinpoint. I imagine it had started before then, um, but from then I couldn't sleep alone at night. I was terrified that someone was going to hurt me and that um, – you know, even leaving the house, I lived literally like three doors down, three houses, sorry, down the road from my school and wouldn't walk to school alone. Um, there was a few boys in my street that were getting in trouble with the law. And so I started getting scared, like any teenager freaked me out. Um, so that's kind of the age that things, yeah, started for mm. me, um, which is quite young. Yeah. And so what sort of did you, did your parents, like were you open with your parents about it? I was to the point, I mean, I couldn't not be because I'd spend my night screaming. And so like yeah. that, we tried everything. There was, I slept on their floor at some point. Um, my parents moved down to a room that was closer to my bedroom. Um, my mum slept with me for a little while. Um, yeah, it was, they were very aware, but no one at school knew, no one outside my family who didn't need to know, didn't know. Yeah. Um, and had they thought 
I mean, had they seen me, they wouldn't have known any difference. No, of course um, not. Whereas night times in my house were not really a great, great time. So was it anxiety that you were dealing with? Yeah, it was. So it was anxiety, um, like just a lot of fear and, um, you know, I'd hear noises and whether it was like a car door shutting and I'd suddenly think that someone was coming to, you know, hurt me or um, I might hear like, I don't know, a rustle and I'd think someone was close by. And it, so it was really kind of irrational fears mm. um, that I guess were sparked by what I saw, the incident I saw on the news. Um, but yeah, very quickly I I kind of started, um, well, I called it checking when I was younger and I'd check under my bed and behind my door and in my cupboards um, to make sure there was no like boogeyman or whatever it was. Mm. Um, and that started off as kind of like I'd do it once and then as the months progressed, I'd do it, you know, 10 times before I was allowed to go to sleep. And um, within a short, I don't know, maybe year or so, um, these rituals uh, became a lot more common and started um, started leaving, what was I going to say? I was going to say like leaving the bedroom. They weren't just around my bedtime routine. Mm-hmm. Um, I started doing them when I went to leave the house. And, uh, yeah, very quickly it became – uh, quite a consistent thing within my day. Um, and what would happen if you didn't do these things or did you have to do these I things? felt like I had to because I was protecting myself and as, as things went on, I started having the fear that if I didn't, like say, open a door four times, I was obsessed with even numbers and if I didn't open a door four times, then um, there was a chance that my parents could be killed in a car accident. And people with, uh, I was uh, eventually, sorry, diagnosed with OCD and people with obsessive compulsive disorder, you know that these thoughts are rational. You know that opening a door four times is not going to result in a car crash, but the like the fear mm. that it could, you just give into it and you open the door four times yeah. and then these rituals become more and more and more um, engulfed in you, I guess. That's a lot of stress on a 10-year-old child yeah. to have that kind of, you know, responsibility of, you know, I've we've had someone else on the podcast who spoke about their OCD and how uh, it was a, a similar thing where they were trying to protect their parents and mm-hmm. if they didn't do these things, they wouldn't protect their parents. That's like a huge responsibility and that causes must cause so much stress within you. Yeah, it did. And I think it caused more anxiety. Um, and, and yeah, like I said, the way OCD works is that, you know, so my nighttime routine um, was enough for a little while, but then it wasn't enough. And I had to do more and more and more to the point where I needed like an hour warning before I left the house because there was so much I needed to do. And if I didn't do that, then something bad was going to happen. Right. Um, Which is scary. And I was, this kind of lasted a couple of years. I saw my first psychologist when I was 10. My parents were completely stuck at what to do. Yeah. Completely supportive. Um, but I mean, it was completely new to them. So what kind of things were you having to do in like that hour before you needed to go? I like- did a lot of, um, a lot of check it. Well, I still called it checking. So I checked that windows were shut. Um, I might have to walk in and out of the door four times. Um, even when it came to like reading a page in a book or like reading a text, I'd have to read the text multiple times. Right. Um, a lot of repetition around mm. around numbers. Um, cleanliness was not something that I struggled with. And I think with OCD, people often assume that you're super clean and super tidy. Um, I wasn't at all. My room was a mess. Um, but I did um, wash my hands a lot, not because I was afraid of germs, but because I had to wash them a certain number yeah. of times. 
Um, and so were there severe anxiety? Like, was there severe anxiety if you weren't able to do these things to your like routine? Yeah, I actually I journaled a lot when I was unwell, and so I found a journal recently, and I went through it, and there was two pages in this journal where I'd written down all the routines I had to do in a day, and these were just numbers. And I look back on it, and I have no idea what these numbers mean. Um, but at the time, they would have meant so much to me, like eight for this that, whether it was eight times opening a door or mm. four times opening a drawer, um, and then I. I remember there's a there's a line at the bottom of it and it says I've got an appointment at nine tomorrow I'm gonna have to wake up at 4am to get everything done and I just like felt really sad for myself and and whether I got up at 4am the next day I have no idea but the fact that I even felt so compelled and so controlled and like I had to do that out of the fear that if I didn't something terrible was going to happen like it's awful mm. and so then going through a through a psychologist did that sort of help things a bit or not really it, so initially um the first psychologist I saw blamed everything on my mum which was <laughs> not, not very, very fair not very helpful. <laughs> no not very helpful at all and kind of made me feel worse about everything um but as things progressed um yeah so again I had yeah after the obsessive compulsive disorder I felt really out of control with the behaviors that were supposed to give me a sense of control um and so I started controlling my my food intake I was eating less exercising a lot more and then how old were you when you did this this was like um 30 I started around the age of 13 so from 10 to 11 12 13 um yeah things kind of progressed to the point that I was um uh developed an eating disorder um and Throughout my recovery and treatment for my eating disorder, we did a lot of work on my OCD and a lot of exposure therapy. So I'd go into my psychologist's um, office or consultation room or whatever, and I'd have the urge to sit up and down four times and he'd make me sit like I could just sit down and not, I wasn't allowed to do it. And we'd just sit with that anxiety and that feeling and let it pass, which it always did. But that was also a scary. It would have been quite hard for you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that was a really helpful, once I found him, I was in a, yeah, I was kind of began my journey to freedom, I guess. So how long were you unwell with an eating disorder before you were starting to get help for it? So that was, I mean, it's such a blurred line. Mm. I don't really know. Um, I, I really don't know. I know it became really bad over the, um, summer period, so the eight weeks of school holidays between 2009 and 2010. So much more time. So much more time. Um, yeah. I, yeah, I didn't have the structure of school. I understand from having one, like that yeah. was the time where I was like, it's not, it's not, I wasn't doing my best, but that's when you were like, yeah, I'm doing my best work because Completely. you had no school and you were able to like control your eating a lot And just more. focus on, yeah, there was completely mm. no structure, which I probably loved at the time, but it was not helping me at all. Yeah. Um, and then it was in January of 2010 that I was admitted to hospital. So, um, how old were you then? I think I was I was either 14 or 15. Yeah, I get a bit confused about the age. It's, it's sometimes I look back on it and I can't even believe it was me. Did you get really honest. small? Yeah, so I got really. I was medically unstable when I was admitted to hospital, and um, I think that's the kind of moment. Like people have been telling me I looked unwell. Um, and that was the kind of moment where I was like, okay, this is more serious. And I think I realized, um, I remember we have a beach house in Omaha and we were driving down the motorway. And I remember mum saying to me one day, if you do not start eating, you're going to end up there with the tube down your nose. And then fast forward six months and I'm sitting there with a the feeding tube. Mm. Um, yeah. In a hospital room where I spent 12 weeks and then another six and then two more stays in the psychiatric unit. So did you, we'll go through this, but did you 
So it started when you were 13 and then you were admitted when you were how old, sorry? 15. 15. So in 14, that, 15. So in that time from 13 to 14, 15, did you want to get better or were you like that you were in the throes of it? I don't even think I realised that there was much of an issue going right. on. Um, and I think once the disorder really took hold, it was almost too... I don't want to say too late. I know it, what you, you know, mean because it was the same for me where it was like I just started doing something. I didn't really think about it. Yeah. And it just happened. And then before you know it, you have a full – like I don't want to say this is the case for everyone, but for me it was just these things I would do. Mm-hmm. And then before you know it, you have a full-blown eating disorder yeah. and you didn't you didn't really realise that you were doing that. At all. It's just little things that kind of mm. build up like you said. And um, so I think, yeah, it kind of did – take me more by surprise. I mean, my parents were watching this process and people, you know, are often like, well, you know, are, are probably often like, I don't know if that's the right word, but um, like, why didn't your parents intervene? But my parents couldn't kick me down while I was exercising or literally force feed me. There was mm. no way. I was so determined to not that no one could do anything. They no. felt completely helpless. And that's how strong a mental illness is, is that your parents, you know, a need for your child is food and your parents can't even provide that. No, yeah, exactly, exactly right. They can, I mean, they could, what, sit down and force feed you, but mm. then you could, you know, you can get rid of it yourself. Or, right, right. Um, they, yeah, especially as you're a teenager, you can kind of get away with it somehow. I, yeah, I yeah. know exactly what you mean. It's probably, if you're a child maybe, but like as a teenager, you can, you kind of, you feed yourself, yeah. you know. like Yeah, and it's kind of just you know, normal to do so. Yeah, oh yeah, no, it's absolutely horrible time. So when you went into hospital, mm-hmm. where were you at mentally? It was a really bad place. Um, I think it was probably my physically my lowest point and also mentally my lowest point. Um, but I was, I think from that moment, um, and I talked to other girls and guys and they have different experiences, but when I was put into hospital, I almost felt relieved. Um, suddenly kind of all the control was taken out of my hands. And yes, that was anxiety provoking, but I kind of knew then that I was going to be okay and I was going to get better and that my days didn't have to be spent you know, running up and down the stairs or eating this, that, and the next thing. And, you know, it, it was kind of um, time to kind of get my life back. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and I guess, I mean, with anorexia, you you are um, underweight. And in many cases of eating disorders, you aren't. And I think that's an issue um, in itself and confuses people um, because a lot of the times you can't see people with eating disorders. yeah, um, And then so people who aren't underweight don't feel like they're worthy of treatment when actually it's not the case at all. But um, in terms of, yeah, when I when I was in hospital, I had to, before kind of the therapy started, I had to gain weight just to kind of get my mind back, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. I mean, uh, and people who don't, haven't experienced this. I mean, it's hard maybe to explain exactly because we're two people that have, so we just know. Like, yeah, I know. It makes so much sense. So I'm trying head. to, I'm trying to like think of how to explain it, but like obviously we can explain it through our experiences. But it basically just, yeah, it completely mm. takes over, doesn't it? Mm. And um, and yeah, it just consumes you without even realizing it, and then all of a sudden you just feel like it's too late. You're like, oh no, I like have no control anymore. Yeah, and you think, I mean, you think you have so much control and control over everything because you're controlling what you eat and how you exercise, but actually, you have no control. Yeah, the eating disorder is completely in control of everything. It, yeah, you it just do. consumes your whole life. Mm. Like it consumes every moment, and you just don't think you'll ever be free of it completely. And you were at school as well. I was. I actually dropped out of school for two years. So um, when I was first admitted to hospital, 
um, they have a hospital school, which mm. I didn't know about until I was in hospital. Um, and I then transitioned to correspondence. So I did homeschooling for yeah. two years uh, because school was way too anxiety provoking and I just needed to focus on getting better and at my own pace um, in terms of schooling. Mm. which I was I was really lucky. Was for. it hard in a way not I mean I know you say that school was anxiety ridden for you mm-hmm. but was it hard for you not to go to school and be in routine or and constantly be in hospital and things? Yeah, I, I don't know. I I found school really difficult in terms of I mean my OCD rituals had had um gone on to onto school so to say mm-hmm. so I'd have to work a walk a certain way to get to my classes and like yeah. so Going to school was exhausting. Right. Um, And because I was so in my own head, I was very isolated. And so seeing friends wasn't even something I really wanted to do. Um, Looking back, I think I missed out on certain things, missing two years of school. Uh, And I guess, I don't don't really know. I don't really know what it would have been like to be there for those two years. It it probably is the best place that you were in. Like, Mm -hmm. obviously, that was very important for you to recover and it, so- it sounds like you were very, very sick. Mm. Like you needed to be in hospital and you were there for quite a long time, right? Yeah. In and out four times. I think it was probably about a year all up or something. Yeah. Like it was, yeah. And w- were you willing to go or did you not want to go? I was. I was a very cooperative, um, which um, is different for each individual. Mm. I mean, disorders can make you very uncooperative. And um, But in my case, I there was a couple of times where I almost cried out for help and was like, take me to hospital. I remember going to one of my... Um, public appointments once with uh, the regional eating disorder team and being like, I need to go to hospital now. Like I'm not okay. Um, and so I was really, I was really vocal. And I think that's what helped me during my recovery. Is you that, were in tune with what was going yeah, on. Yeah, I was in yeah. tune and I was really willing to put my hand up and be like, hey, I'm not okay. Put me somewhere or mm-hmm. take me somewhere or do something. And yeah. did they listen to you? On occasions. I mean, hospitals are very, you know, selective on who they take in. It's very clinical treatment approach, which I found yeah. I found quite hard. Like yeah. I found like I, I have a lot of respect and of course like we respect and we go down that route. Mm-hmm. But for me, I mean I did do parts of that with psychologists and stuff, but for me, my experiences of going to hospitals and stuff, it was just very not very nice yeah. in terms of the way they'd speak to you or like the way it was just so clinical. I became very institutionalized yeah, to the point I, that I was scared to leave hospital. Really? See, I, I mean, I did a little bit of that stuff, but I wasn't underweight enough to be in, um, in hospital as a, I was an outpatient basically. Mm-hmm. And I'd go on for testing and appointments and things. But, um, but I found, yeah, I just found my therapy and even like alternative therapy, on the outside of hospital. I found that suited me better. I don't right. know. I think everyone's different. And I, I think it is. I yeah. think when, especially if in your case where you were so underweight mm. and that's, that's where you had to be because like, that's, you know, it's very serious. No sort of thing, it's very yeah. serious. And I'm, and so I'm not saying anything anti hospitals or doctors because not at all. I have so much respect and God, we like go to them when we need them mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. But for me, it, well, I felt like it was so clinical mm. And it would make me even feel like more guilty for what I'd done to myself. You know what I, I mean? I, it's interesting. I actually, because um, I was on the general pediatric ward, so um, well, for half my stay. And so I was around kids. I was kind of the oldest on the ward, but I was around kids that were fighting physical illness. And I remember on many occasions feeling so guilty that I was taking up space in this room. But then my, you know, I was constantly reminded that I wouldn't have been there if I didn't need to be there and mm-hmm. that there's nothing selfish about having a mental illness. Yeah. And I think sometimes when you can't see it on the outside, um, it's hard to kind of get your head around, but they're just as serious as physical illness mm. and require intense treatment. You know? Yeah. 
So how did you find that things shift from the worst space you were at, the way, the worst place you're in? Like, talk us through that first of all. What was that like for you? Being in like the worst of the worst. Worst of the worst. Honestly, I can't actually remember a lot of that time. Um, I have moments where I'm like, oh, that happened and that happened. I just remember being consumed, like completely consumed by thoughts and behaviours and, you know, negative thoughts about myself and um, there's this TED talk. I can't remember who did it, which is not ideal, but um, she plays this video of what it sounds like in the mind of someone with an eating disorder. And it's literally just like a hundred people talking to you at once. <laughs> and I don't, I don't, when people say like, did you hear voices? I don't think I heard voices. It was no. more like thoughts and just kind of, and I think that was a confusing thing that it was almost, it almost felt like it was me, mm. but I had to keep reminding myself that I had an illness that was it's so complicated. Yeah, you know? I, think that this, it, I totally understand what you're saying. And that's the thing with an eating disorder. It just like takes over your mind. Mm. It's a complete mind if like yeah. it completely like it just takes over. And it, yeah, you, you know what's going on, but you feel, I felt so crazy. Mm. I felt, mm. I knew what was going on, but I was just like, I'm losing the plot. Like mm-hmm. I am crazy. And also because like, you're not getting the right nutrients and like, you know, things from your food, your yep. body isn't, and your mind isn't working. Like mum would always, you know, be even just trying to get me to drink like electrolyte drinks. Mm-hmm. If I was being like, you know, hadn't eaten all day or hadn't eaten. And, you know, she'd be like, drink this. Cause at least it will bring your levels up. You know, I'd be like, no, it's got sugar in it. You know, like it's crazy. eh? And Mm. I mean, food is something that we need to survive. And I think that's why people struggle to understand eating disorders, which I also understand is because food is something that we have before we're even, you know, when we're inside our parent, I was going to say our parents, but our mum's tummies, you know, and when we're born, we have milk and food is something that is part of life. And so to get to a point where you have such an unhealthy relationship where you either don't eat or you overeat or you eat and then purge, you know, mm. it's it's a hard thing for people to understand. I think, and everyone's different, but maybe for you as well. For me, it was a definite, I think maybe it was from what you've told me, I it was my way of controlling things. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us, like I worked out for me, my anxi- my eating disorder was caused by my anxiety. Right. So that's what it called. It started with anxiety and my need to control things and feel in control and then other factors and stuff as well, of course. But that was, you know, for a lot of, I mean, not, not everyone's the same, but it's like I found for me getting to the core of what was causing it, that's how I was able to recover. I'm the same on that, that I don't, I know individuals, you know, have bad body image and or they go on diets and then things become out of control. But for me, I completely agree that it was anxiety and I felt completely out of control with my anxiety and my food was something I could control. Yeah, I could control it. And then, for so yeah. long. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> then, same. For yeah, so long. Yeah. And, of course, there's going to be comments like, I grew up dancing, and so, you know, mm-hmm. like there was always things said about your body when you're in costumes and getting size and things. And, and they were probably really innocent comments mm-hmm. made by people in my family and stuff, but I took them on and I was like, yeah. you know, so, of course, it's not just the anxiety. There's other comments and things that get said and then the body image thing, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it all stems from that anxiety for some of us anyway. I mean, yeah. so it sounds like you and I. I'd relate. Yeah. On that. yeah. <laughs> so when you did when you did get better, mm-hmm. so you were out of hospital, like how did things go? How did it all pro- progress? So I'm really lucky and, I mean, as crazy as this will sound, I feel really lucky that I became so unwell because I was given such intense treatment, something that really upsets me. Um, even in the work I do now, when girls come to me who have eating disorders and they're either turned away from treatment because they're not underweight or there's a long waiting list, um, it's really dangerous to tell someone that they're not worthy of treatment or that there's not enough 
time or room mm. for them at this point, or they're not a low enough weight, because as I said, in most cases, people with eating disorders, weight actually isn't an issue. Um, but for me, I I was really fortunate to be able to provide um, have private treatment. Um, so I was very lucky in that way that I had intensive private treatment once I came out of the hospital system. Um, where I did a lot of work on myself and, like you said, the underlying issues and what was actually causing this and where it had stemmed from and really uh, working and doing things head on. So a lot of exposure therapy. A lot of the treatment for my OCD actually helped with my eating disorder stuff um, because a lot of that was that based around – It would all been linked. Well, it, all, it, all, it yeah. is, yeah, and that's the thing. But a lot of the exposure therapy was around um, learning that anxiety passes. And so when I had anxious moments around food, it's like, yes, I'm feeling anxious now, but I won't feel anxious in five minutes sort of mm. thing. Um, so, yeah, I was really lucky in that in that way that I did have such intense treatment. Mm. Did you find that when you when you were recovering – and did it reach a, because a lot of people ask me as well they're like is recovery final I'm like not always for everyone you know like it depends on your situation but did you get to a point where eventually bit by bit you sort of did feel like you were had recovered I find yeah this is I get asked this a lot as well and they're like people say was there like a light bulb you were suddenly well again um and I think there was a lot of little moments mm. that built up over time and there wasn't I didn't wake up one day and I was like I'm free I'm yeah, fine yeah. um and I really struggle to use the word recovered now just because when I have days off days so to say or I wake up on the wrong side of the bed and I'm feeling a bit crappy about myself I start to worry that I'm falling back into old habits and old ways when I'm not um but I like to say I'm just really really well and I'm mm. and I'm free more than anything yeah but I don't remember it being like a certain moment I think every single day I got stronger mm. and every single day I still get stronger yeah um as we all do I guess. yeah it was the same for me and it's like and then sometimes there may be triggers and situations um which I know I've had mm-hmm. in time and you know these old behaviors or thoughts may come up again and don't I don't know like it's hard don't be scared about it but as soon as it happens seek help like yeah that's what I'd do I'd be like okay this is years back but I'd be like okay yep cool I need to talk to someone now like yeah. these things are starting to happen again and know? I think the good thing about that is once you've been through that you're able to you're aware of what your triggers well not necessarily your triggers but you're aware of um you know when things do pop up that aren't okay yeah you know, if something came up now and I was like oh, I feel weird about that then like you said I'd reach out and get some help. Yeah. Um, but no, I'm in a really, really good place. Yeah, I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank you. Uh, do, did you find that there was there was triggers for you at times when you were recovering? Um, I didn't like – eating disorders are really competitive illnesses. And so I found it really hard being – I was in a day program with 10 other girls that had eating disorders. So spending my days with other girls with eating mm. disorders was tricky at points. Um, but then it was a reminder or I just had to remind myself that only I could recover for myself and what they were doing was what they were doing and it wasn't going to get me to a better place. Um, in terms of triggers. Uh, or like stressful situations when you were met by any stress or anything, would that sort of bring up any old things? Old things. I remember there was there was a couple of times where I went on like a family holiday to a place that I'd been previously when I wasn't in such a good space. And so even just kind of the reminder of where I'd been the previous time that I was there and um, brought up a few things, but I don't, I don't remember certain moments of feeling triggered as such throughout recovery. Mm. Um, I'm sure there were, I mean, social media and like <laughs> there's so much on there as well that you look at a photo and you think someone's life's perfect and you start comparing yourself to them. 
once you were a lot better, mm-hmm. did you go back to school? Like what happened for you? Yes, yeah, so I did. I went back to school in my year 13, part-time in year 12, and then in my year 13 year. Uh, I was a bit behind compared to the other classmates. So I actually did a lot of year 12 classes, uh, which at the time was interesting because I was like in my long year 13 skirt sitting with year 12s. Um, but again, I just remind myself, you know, I had to do things at my own pace. And so school was something I completed. My last year of school was probably the best year of school for me. Um, I made some really great friendships because uh, I'd come back after being away for quite a bit of time. Um, and I mean, school's challenging. I wasn't, yeah. I'm not super smart, but I got through it and yeah, graduated with my, with my classmates. And then it was then that you went to America and did the acting? It was two years after that. So oh, when okay. I finished high school uh, for a year and a half, I worked at a special needs school, um, which I absolutely loved. And again, like I often, people ask me like, are you thankful for what you went through? And I don't know if thankful is the right word, but I don't think I would have ever worked at a special needs school or, you know, gone to the States or had the courage to go to the States, go to the States, had I not been through what I went through. Um, so yeah, I did that for two years and then... I went to the States. Mm. What do you think your mental health issues and eating disorder did teach you? And you say that you, you know, you were able to do all these things because you've been through that. Mm. What did it teach you? Did it make you less fearless or something? I think it did. It made me realize how brave and how strong I am and uh, how unimportant some things that I used to worry about were. Uh, and I'm constantly reminding myself, like as silly as the saying YOLO is, like you do only live once and mm. I want to live my best life and um, make the most of it. And I really cherish friendships a lot now and and support. Um, yeah, I just, I learned so much about myself um, and about, about the world out there, I guess. You know, from being in hospital, I met people that were fighting for their lives and I lost a friend at 16 when I was in hospital. And so experiences that I wouldn't have had had I not been through what I had. You were so young when you were going through that. Yeah. Like you were, you were so young mm. when, you know, when you think about it, mm. like for, I mean, everyone's different and, and when they're going through things, but 14 to 16. Yeah. It's so young, isn't it? It's so young. It's so young. And I don't think, yeah, like I, like I said, I often look back and I'm like, was that me? Did I really go through that? Especially because I feel so well now, but it, it was a lot. And I look at the kids that I work with and I'm like, when I was your age, I was not doing this. So mm. it's, you know, not in a great place. So it's kind of in a, in a way, not because I mean, every, everyone, everything happens in everyone's life and that's fine. It's not taking mm. away from anyone, but it's kind of really good that you were able to fight that battle when you did. And yeah. then you could get on with the rest of your life. Yeah, I'm just, can, I'm really thankful that you like, not that I'm, I'm not happy that no, you I went through it, but you know what Thank I mean? You. Like, I'm yeah. glad that you were able to Get, kick it and mm-hmm. then and then get mm-hmm. on with the rest of your life completely and I look back on my 24 years of life and I'm like I've done so much been through mm. so much and if anything comes up in the future hopefully I'm happy and well and healthy yeah. for the rest of my life um I'll be able to tackle it what has on. your relationship with food been like since then though so food and exercise it's been it's been good so I um that was all kind of part of the recovery process I used to abuse my relationship with exercise I'd exercise yeah. a lot which is also common Same. um <laughs> so bad isn't yeah it? not because I wanted to too but lazy I to do that like now to, yeah admin um <laughs> but I yeah I'm in a really good place I eat intuitively I guess if I'm hungry I eat if I'm not I'm not eat and there's no rules around it mm. um, and I can go out with friends and socialize around food and I'm Yay. not afraid of food and I think it's yeah pretty normal. Did it take you a while to get to that place? Yeah I think it did. I think How it long really do you did. think it took you? I mean it was something that I, I had to work on for 
probably years throughout that whole process of, of getting better. I say that like I'm a 50-year-old lady, um, through through getting better. Mm. and I mean, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's a hard thing to avoid because food's always around. And so you're constantly challenging yourself if you choose to challenge yourself with things that maybe scared you previously or whatnot. Um, but yeah, it was definitely a process. Mm. I didn't just wake up one day able to eat everything I was yeah. terrified of. And that's something I do like to remind people who maybe are really not well at the moment that you can get to that place. Mm-hmm. Like I promise you, mm-hmm. you can get there and like, it's not easy. It takes a lot of work and a lot of therapy, but you can get there. Yeah, completely. You know, like uh, you'll understand like when you're younger, um, you know, like going to dinner with friends or going to like family things and there being food around, it's just too stressful. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or like even being out of travel and like, you know, you, it's just, yeah, weekends away or whatever. It just becomes, you can't do all these things. No, you can't. I used to avoid social events. Same. When I knew that there was going to be food around. Yeah. And it's it's so nice to be at a point now that, you know, I get excited about going out yeah. for a brunch with my friends. And, not worried you know, because I'm like, oh, what am I going to be able to eat yeah, or not eat? Completely. Or? It's just when your mind and is completely focused on food 24-7, it's exhausting and oh. boring. The stats are not good. There's a lot of women and men dealing with our eating disorders. And I, I when I talked about mine earlier this year, I was – I, I don't know. It's just quite. It's quite a shocking thing because it's just not spoken about enough. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there's various reasons around that. We were talking before about you know there's a lot of guilt and shame. Oh, I think yeah. that's one of the biggest factors because mm-hmm. you just feel so guilty and like it, I mean to tell people ten years on, I was like, it's a secret that I'd kept for ten years. It's I completely the same. I the way I shared my um, story with the world, so to say, and it did end up going everywhere was um, through a video with Voices of Hope. And so I didn't talk about it. Jazz didn't even know initially what I went through. That's how much shame I felt that I didn't even tell my Mm. co-founder that we were inviting people to share their stories and I hadn't even shared my story. Like I felt really, um, what's the word? Like a fraud. Like a fraud, Mm. Uh, not authentic and authentic. And and it was once I shared my story, I was terrified. I remember the morning it came out. It was a video. Um, I was worried. There was this post that went up on Instagram a few days ago, and it kind of summed up everything. I was worried it was going to ruin my career, my friendships, that I was going to be defined as a girl that had the eating disorder, that people were going to watch me when I was eating because I'd had an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it ended up being one of the most positive things I ever did. And saying that, it's still I still wouldn't walk down the street and be like, I guess you just wouldn't probably anyway to the road worker. Hey, I had anorexia. Yeah, um, no, it, no, but totally. you know, it's one of those things yeah. that as, as confident as I am in myself and what I went through, there's still um, learning to be done for me around being able to be hundred percent authentic with that, I guess. Yeah. Oh, even when I shared it afterwards, it's like, Oh, delete, 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 like <laughs> should delete. But I didn't. No, but like, no. Cause I listened to it. <laughs> yeah. But like, uh, yeah, I just, even 10 years on after I had recovered, I was like, it's, it carries so much shame with mm-hmm. it. Like it just, you can be in a good space with it and you can be like well and everything, but yeah, that's, I think that's a big factor. I don't know. It's huge. And people struggle to reach out because of the shame. I mean, when people say, why didn't you talk about it? I say I was ashamed to have had yeah. an eating disorder. Yeah. Um, but then I, the amount of people that reach out to me who have eating disorders or know someone or even in my year when I was at school, they are so common 
Oh yeah, yet they're not talked about. I think it's like one in four. It's yeah, something like that. And and there's a, a stat. We don't even have stats in New Zealand for eating disorders, no, which I'm, is another yeah, going issue off in Australia itself. Ones, which is not even yeah. legit for us. Yeah. But they um, eating disorders have the highest death rate of any psychiatric illness, and yet we are not talking about them. There's, I, I think, like we were talking about before, it's it's finding that that line of how to talk about them as well, mm. um, because people can get triggered by certain things. Um, but yeah, I remember reading a shame. book. I remember reading a book while I was recovering. I say mm. with uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was about a girl who had anorexia, and it just taught me better tricks. Mm. Mm. It was like it was te- it was teaching me better things to do completely. So you you do have to be careful what kind of information is being shared. I mean, people are going to find things whatever they're after, especially now, like with in- the internet and everything. I know, I know. But yeah, I, I don't know. I just think it is so common and I don't know what we can be doing better. There's, I think there's a really tricky thing as well. Um, there's such a fine line between um, being health obsessed mm. and having disordered eating or exercise behaviors. You know, we've got yeah. such a huge culture, even on social media of being fitness healthy and, you know, yeah. green smoothies and this, and I'm not saying green smoothies bad. I love a good green smoothie. Yeah. Um, but there's just such a confused line of, yes. of what's being obsessive and triggering to others and You're what's so actually right. kind of normal and healthy. Cause it's a big trend right now. I mean, it has oh, been for a long huge, time. Yeah. You know, like the fitness industry is massive. Yeah, YouTube videos is fitness. Yeah. Completely. Yeah. We all live in our active wear all the time. Yeah. You know? completely. Like, it's a thing. So yeah, you're right. It is hard to then. And then also another thing is that some people don't want to get better or some people don't, are in denial or don't even know what's going on and don't want help yet. You yeah. know, so or too scared to reach out and say, Hey, look, I'm not in a good place. Yeah. So there's this eating disorders, but then there's eating, there's disordered eating as yep. well. So, I mean, it can come, we're not professionals, but it can come in lots of different like. Oh, completely. Well, they've got, levels. you know, orthorexia is a recent development. I, I'm pretty sure it's recent um, over the last few years sort of thing. And that's when you're really, um, you know, health conscious in terms of food. And, you know, you, you see some people out there on social media that are, that are so obsessed and putting this message out to all their followers. And it's like, is this actually all that healthy or mm. not? Um, but yeah, that, that tricky illnesses. And like you said, I don't even know where to, where to start. Yeah. But I want to do something. Same. I want to do more, but then like whenever I think about doing things and then people just say, by talking about it and by telling your story, you're giving people hope. Yeah. And, and that's great. Mm-mm. But I would love to be able to do more and work with people that are like, in those fields but it's like what do we do what do we do I just want like I just want young girls especially because I know it's young boys as well but I just want young girls to have someone to help them through it because for you and for a lot of us it started when we were really young yeah when we're really young and like I just don't think when you're that young you don't even understand what's going on you don't get it and then before you know it you're really sick and it could be years and years on and I just I don't know. I think like you talk about with Voices of Hope, you want to initially you're like, no, we're going to save everyone. Like I don't want to save everyone because I realize that's not how life works, Mm. but I want to help people, you know, like completely. how do we do this so they don't have to go through that pain or if they do have to go through it, how do we help them? You know what I mean? And I think it's one of those things. And this is again, what we do through Voices of Hope is and what you've done through sharing your own story. And when people do share their own stories is that you're giving people hope and Mm you know, people who are in the same place that I was or you were looking at our content and going, oh, she's done it. I can do it too. Yeah. And it often doesn't feel like enough, but it's something. Yeah, that's true. And it's inspiring people. Um, And maybe they're reaching out to you or, you know, like it's, it's a step. 
in the right direction. Definitely. What are some things you would say to somebody who might be listening to this right now that is themselves struggling with an eating disorder or maybe someone they know? That's a question I get asked a lot as well mm. is how to help someone you know is is struggling. What would you tell people? So this is not coming from clinical. This is just from my own personal experience. Um, in terms of helping someone or supporting someone that's um, struggling with an eating disorder, I think as a friend, sometimes the best thing you can do is just be a friend. Uh, I felt like with me, there were so many people telling me what to do. I had psychologists, I had dietitians, I had, you know, my parents were telling me what to do. I just needed a friend that I could talk to about random stuff mm. um, and just listen. I think it's so, I don't know, I'm guilty of it as well that I want to fix things. And so I'm always giving solutions, but sometimes the best thing you can do is just listen. And if you're concerned about your friend, then or your family member or whoever it may be, um, let them know. My mum often says, and again, it wasn't my friend's responsibilities, but they're like, Jen, I wish your friends had told me that you weren't eating your lunch at lunch because then we could have got onto this. And that's not to put the blame on my friends, but, um, you know, I might have hated my friends in the meantime for reaching out, but in the long run, I probably would have thanked them. But yeah, I just think listening and being a good friend is one of the best Mm. things you can do. Um, And then what about like if people can then reach out for help for others. Can you do that? Reach out for help for others. I, it's a very good question. Um, you can, so in certain cases when I haven't been unsure, I've been unsure on how to support someone. I've contacted places like 1737 and asked yeah. for clinical advice and be like, hey, look, I've got a friend. Um, they don't want to go to the GP. I think they need to go to the GP. What can I do? And so I can't really give that advice, um, but I think getting advice from professionals is a really great yeah. idea. Um, but even saying, you know, saying to your friend, hey, look, I'll come with you to the GP. I'll drive you to the GP. I'll I'll, I'll take you and support you and be there. Or do you want to go for a walk or get a coffee and we can we can talk about this? Because mm. um, sometimes it's just opening that conversation. Yeah. And once you do that and build that trust, they're able to, you know, Mm. do more with it completely um and what about if someone is going through it themselves yeah you've been there yeah you understand what would you tell them that you can get through this I think that's the most important thing you've got to hold on to hope and got to believe that you can do it um Jazz and I often talk about finding something to fight for because if you don't know what you're fighting for then it's so hard to wake up each day and actually fight the illness head on for me a huge thing was goal planning and and dreaming so I I wrote down my goals and I had them in front of me when I was eating or um, when I was, you know, thinking of engaging in negative behavior. And then one of the most important things I learned was um, because I knew my goals, whenever I had a negative thought or an urge to engage in a behavior like exercising secretively or whatever it may have been, I'd ask myself, is this getting me closer to my goal? And sometimes that was enough to be like, you don't need to do that. Mm. Um, I think it's really, like I said, important to hold on to hope and to not fight it alone. Again, there's so much shame around it, but it's so much harder to fight this illness when you're when you're doing it solo. And there is help out there. You've just got to reach out to access it completely because um, people can't read your mind. And and yeah, it's just it's a lonely, isolating place to be. But you're not alone. Mm. You've been there. And there's so many people that are there and you're going to be, you're going to be fine. I think also the thing is not to get too, and this goes for anything, not just eating disorders, but whether you're recovering from a mental illness or anxiety or whatever it is, 
just take it one day at a time. I think sometimes you think of the big picture and you freak yourself out Uh as well. Like it's, yeah. So like, rather than just being like, oh God, this is going to be so hard to get myself out of this. Mm -hmm. Like just one day at a time, one hour at a time, one minute at a time is one way as well. Like rather than get too freaked out, but just a day at a time. Yeah. And, and yeah, you totally can get through it. Like, I mean, we've done it. And it was not easy, was it? And we it? wouldn't have believed that we were going nah, to when we were in the middle of it. I, I thought that was my life. Mm. I was like, I'm never going to be free of this. But you can be. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most powerful things, seeing people that have that have got through it. Um, and just don't compare your journey to anyone else either. No. I think everyone's journey is very individual and you've just got to focus on yourself and, and do the opposite of what your eating disorder is telling you to. Mm. Um, because, you know, your eating disorder may feel like your best friend, but it's not going to be happy until you're gone and yeah. you can't you can't leave us. <laughs> Did you think that was going to happen to you? Did you think it was going to get you? My eating disorder? I didn't. I didn't. Again, I didn't realise how bad it was. I think that was one of the scariest things when I got admitted to hospital. They were like a few weeks and you would have been gone. And wow. looking back now, everything I've done over the last 14, 15, not 15, I can't count. I don't know, 10 plus years, none of that would have happened had I lost my battle to my eating disorder. And I'm really, really glad I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That, well done. Mm. So incredible. Thank yeah, you. And you t- too. I think it takes a lot of a lot of strength. Yeah. And we did it. And like, yeah, that's the thing. You don't think you're, did you think you were going to have a life free from it? No, I thought it was kind of my, I think I got used to, used to the way things were and kind of accepted that so that was, shit as well, and I it? was exhausted and over it and didn't want to live that life like that. You know, and you would have been so, t- you get so tired as well because oh, yeah. you're not like giving your body what it needs. I um, did a lot of, did a lot of sleeping. I slept a lot because when I was sleeping, it was the only time my mind was yeah. shut off. Um, So I slept whenever I could. And I was obviously, as you would have been, really tired a lot of, you know, exhausted a lot was, of the time. Were you quite grumpy as well? Yeah. I was, I was a total, grumpy. Yeah. I feel like I was a real bitch sometimes. Yeah. yeah, completely grumpy. And that's kind of not me as a person. But mm. I was, although I wasn't as bad as I could have been in terms of disobedient and stuff, I wasn't, yeah, I was not myself. Yeah. Completely takes over. And that was my, when my parents talk to other parents who have children that are going through eating disorders, they say it's so important to separate your child from the disorder. So when you're like fighting with your kid to be like, you've got to eat that. You're not leaving to the table to eat that. You know, you're actually fighting with the eating disorder, not yeah, your child. That's a good way to put um, it. And for myself as well, knowing that I had this illness when my parents are being really tough, they were doing it because they loved me, but also they were focusing it towards this thing because they didn't want to lose their daughter. Yeah. This. Yeah. What's, um, what else are you working on? I mean, obviously you're doing Voices of Hope and stuff, but what other things do you want to do in the future? Well, in terms of eating disorders, I'm starting an eating disorder recovery support group with a recovery coach from Australia, which I'm really excited about. Um, so we've got a carer support group and a support group for individuals with eating disorders. And so I'm really, really looking forward to that um, because it's so needed. We had an event here last year, not here as in, in this room, that would have been weird, um, <laughs> but in Auckland last year and the turnout, there was like 70 people and wow. it shows the need for yeah. the desperate parents that are not sure what to do and and individuals that feel so alone and maybe don't fit the mould for being in hospital and mm. so are just sitting here treading water. Um, so, yeah, that's something I'm really passionate about. I love travelling and so 
Definitely want to do some more traveling. How good is traveling? I love traveling. Just want to do all you the time. You just got back, didn't you? From yeah, yeah, I'm going away again soon. Oh, isn't it so good? Yeah, isn't it so good? Got some, got a few more trips lined up. You just got to keep doing it. You do. We're, we're young you enough, do. you know. We've just mm. got to live our best lives. I think so. And again, life's so short. Like if you've got the opportunity to go and travel, then do it. You've got to do it. And sometimes so you do lucky. have to wait. Like I mean, I I didn't really. I didn't. I was so career focused early on that I didn't really start traveling like much overseas apart from like Australia and stuff until yeah. like I was 28, 29. Mm-hmm. So it's quite a lot longer. But like if you can do it, just I mean, again, like you say, everyone's life is different. Yeah. I think now with Instagram, everyone's like, oh, everyone's off traveling all the time, you know. <laughs> everyone's in Bali at the you're moment. Like, you're like, and you know, like young girls and guys who are like 20, you're like, I should be doing that. It's like, well, it's not always like that. No. Sometimes you've got to work for your career or whatever it may be, you know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it'll all work out. You get to travel. It'll all work out. Yeah. I think that's the thing. And again, just goal setting and planning and. Yeah, I mean, we're very lucky to have the opportunity to travel. Some people probably Oh, it's will such a privilege, and um, I totally understand that. It's such it's, a luxury. Yeah, but it's awesome. We're very lucky. And you do learn a lot about yourself and other, and oh other places and, and home mm-hmm. while you're away. Mm-hmm. Like, in how, cases like, you're like, you realise how lucky you are in some We're very lucky in New Zealand, but then I also realise how expensive it is Yeah, here. it's not it's cheap. It's so expensive. It's not oh cheap. My I'm lucky I still live at home, but like... I, yeah, can I... It's I need cheap. to have parents to live in Auckland. I know, I know. It does make my life easier. Move to Auckland, guys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> moving to my guest room. No, um, but it, yeah, it is one of those things. It's just so expensive. Yeah. But then I love Auckland. You don't realise how good New Zealand is until you move away. Yeah, exactly. What are some of your self-care practices, ways that you like to look after yourself? Self-care. So I'm trying to get a lot better at prioritising. I um, love a good to-do list. And so I really prioritise what's important and what needs to be done now and what can wait. I'm trying to get a lot better. This is still a work in progress, but it's saying no. I like to be involved in everything and to do everything. And if someone's like, Jen, can you come help me with this? I'll be like, yeah, of course. And then it ends up being stressful and it's unnecessary so I'm trying to put myself first a lot more um which has been a work in progress for a while mm. um exercise has become something I I enjoy and do because it makes me feel good and if I don't want to do it then I don't do it which is a nice change from the way things used to be socializing is a big thing I love hanging out with my friends and really making sure I make time for myself daily um, and that doesn't have to be long it might be 10 minutes where I sit in my car and just you know I don't know I was going to say read a book, but I don't even read books. I don't know. Do something. Stare out the window. But it's just kind of me time. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of self-care, I love quotes. I like, I don't know if that's really self-care, um, but I often find myself scrolling through like quotes on Instagram and yeah. just like, I really enjoy that. There's been a few gals who love like quotes on Pinterest I and stuff and they quotes. find it really therapeutic to read. Yeah, yeah, I do. I feel like they understand me. These words. I'm like, that's me. Um, <laughs> what else? Self-care. I love a good shower. Oh my that's god! Do <laughs> random, but do you ever sit down in the shower? I sometimes sit oh down. Oh my in the god! Shower. I love yeah. sitting down in the shower, and the water just pours on your head. Oh, yeah, I, do. So, <laughs> I give my like you, you give your leggies a wee rest, and it's so know. luxurious. You know, I treat know. yourself. It's like a bath in the shower, oh. um, and just knowing that it's that it's okay to reach out. And if I'm, I think that's one of the probably the, again one of the biggest things I learned throughout my journey is that I don't have to know the answer to everything, and if I need some extra support. Whatever that may be, even if I'm at work at the school I work at, I'm like, oh, I've got too much going on, like going and talking to the deputy principal or having a chat with my supervisors or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, really putting myself first, as selfish as that no, may that's, sound. No, that's self-care. Yeah. And then everyone else, ben- like everyone else benefits. Completely. You, yeah. yeah. Um, do you still have to, do you still get anxious sometimes? I do. 
I've more recently than not planes have made me really anxious. Again, I'm really lucky to travel, but um, to the point where I've almost been having panic attacks on planes oh, recently, no. which is awful um, because I've been on a fair few, but I think again, it comes down to the lack of control. I don't have control over the aircraft. And so I feel turbulence and I'm like, we're falling out of the sky. Um, so that's kind of the, when I think of anxiety, that's kind of when I feel most anxious. Um, public speaking sometimes freaks me out, but I think this is normal. You're like, so I think good at it though. I do like to talk. I blabber away. <laughs> um, but yeah, public speaking, I always get a bit nervous before I go and stand up on like a stage or something. Um, but I think it's good nerves. Like it's one of those nerves where you walk away and you're like, yes, I did it. Like I mm. kicked ass. Well, what are your coping strategies? Well, I found a couple of good apps actually that help, um, especially when I'm flying. Um, breathing as stupid as that sounds. Like I just have to remind mm. myself to breathe and just like count my breaths. Um, and again, going back to everything I learned when I was sick, reminding myself that anxiety passes and that it's just a feeling and that a feeling's not going to kill you. Um, and that it's purely just, just that. Mm. Um, yeah. That's probably the main the main thing. That's good. Now you've given us heaps of advice on how like people who may be struggling with eating disorders, how they can get through those. You've given us advice with anxiety. But if there's anyone who listening that, you know, wants to live a cool life like you, do epic things like you're doing, what would your advice be to them? I think you've got to do it. As I've said for the millionth time, life is so short and I think there's no harm in, in trying. If you've got an idea, I think it's really good to gather information and and make sure that you you come out with it strong. Um, but yeah, don't be afraid. There's a quote. I'm really obsessed with Brene Brown. I just watched her documentary. I, I think it's her. cool. Is She's the Netflix real, one? Yeah, the Netflix one. Oh, you've got to watch um, it over and over. I reckon. It's so good. And yeah. I like, I was watching it, but I was like taking notes. It was my Friday night activity. Which sounds I love weird. that. Um, but there's a quote. She said, it's today I'll choose courage over comfort. And I really liked that. Like, I think courage is such a powerful thing. And sometimes you've got to just take that leap of faith and like, what's the worst that can happen? Mm. And life's short. If you've got an idea, run with it. No. Mm. And like you said earlier as well, and it's something I tell myself all the time, you are okay. You're mm -hmm. always going to be okay. And I just know it. You yeah. are always going to be okay. Yeah. And exactly. it, it, it may be not be something, it may not be something you knew when you're younger, but for me, it's something that I, it's like a mantra for me. I just like, mm -hmm. when any, everything's bad, you're just like, I'm okay. Mm -hmm. I'm okay. Everything's going to be okay. And it's so powerful and so simple. Because regardless of what happens, yes, yeah, some really horrible things can happen and some things that seem like a big deal at the time and then it's fine. But, you know, you are, you're always going to be okay mm -hmm. at the end of the day, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. I completely yeah. agree. Yeah. And just believing that. Hey, thank you so much for your time, Jen. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the Self Love Club podcast. Please subscribe for more episodes and catch up on eps you may have missed. Reviews and sharing the Self Love Club with your friends and on your Instagram stories helps so much in spreading the self love message to others who may really need it. You can follow me at Belle Crawford on Instagram plus Self Love Club podcast. Check out my website as well, bellcrawford.com, for Self Love Club resources and blog posts. And we're on Facebook, the Self Love Club community. Go join it now. A big thanks to our audio engineer, Nick Baldwin. We've got heaps of boss babes coming up to empower you through the rest of the year. We're already halfway through. Uh, with weekly episodes available each Monday. Catch you soon, babes. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 